0: The leader must have both, the courage to take people to a daring destination and the humility to selflessly serve others on the journey. Cheryl Batchelder. Hey, friends and family, I'm Cal and welcome back or welcome to a brand new episode of Intentional Living and Leadership where we help you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I firmly believe that you and I each have a unique contribution to make to the world and I hope that this podcast, this platform, this community can help you stay focused and find inspiration to really impact your sphere of influence, the people that you interact with every day, your business, the team that you lead, your family. I hope that this can be a place where you can come back, get inspiration, and then go back out and impact your world and make the world a better place. I I believe in that ripple effect that as we each impact those people that we interact with every day that we can make the world a better place to live in. We can make other people uh, help them throughout their day. You just never quite know what people are dealing with. And that's why leadership matters so much. I want to give a special thank you to all of you that continue to share this podcast with friends, talk about it on social media. Uh, thank you to all of you that have taken the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast. That helps us grow. It helps us find new listeners. And so I just want to thank you for doing that. This is not something I do for money. Uh, it's something I do because I'm passionate about uh, leadership I'm passionate about this journey of living a life that matters living a life where we truly make this one life count I'm so pumped today to get to share with you my conversation with Cheryl Batchelder she is the former CEO of Popeyes she became CEO in the fall of 2007 and it was it was not a great time at Popeye's. Guest visits had been declining for years, restaurant sales and profit trends were negative, and the company's stock price had dropped from $34 in 2002 to $13. The brand was stagnant and relations between the company and its franchise owners were strained. But then by 2014, average restaurant sales were up 25% and profits were up 40%. Popeye's market share had grown from 14% to 21%. And the stock price was over $40. The franchisees were so pleased with the turnaround that they began reinvesting in the brand, rapidly remodeling restaurants and building new units around the world. And the difference maker, Cheryl will tell you, was a conscious decision by her and her team to lead differently. And Cheryl captures all of this In her book, Dare to Serve, which we talk about on this episode, we talk all about her incredible father, Daddy Max, her family's dinner conversations that contributed to her and her siblings all being CEOs or its equivalent in different industries. Uh, We talk about the impact of her faith. On her journey and her leadership, we talk about what it was like to be a female executive at a time where that was pretty uncommon. How she integrated life as a business leader with being a mom and and being uh, someone who cares about her family. How she turned Popeyes around by leading differently. She talks all about servant leadership, but it's a a really, I mean, as you can hear, it was successful. It's not just about serving people. Certainly, that's important, but it also, she will say, is the best way and hardest way to lead. We talk about all of that, so so tune in. For show notes, go to calwalters.me. You'll find links to all the books and the resources that Cheryl mentions during this interview. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with a true servant leader, Cheryl Batchelder. Cheryl Batchelder, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for being on.
1: My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it.
0: I learned about you actually through my wife. She's a director at a software company. And I, when I first started this podcast a little over a year ago, I was asking her, like, if, if you could pick anyone, who would you want to come on the podcast? And the, literally the first person she said, she was like, you need to get Cheryl Batchelder on your podcast. I follow her on LinkedIn and she's so inspiring. And so I started to look into your story and, and I can understand why. You have an incredible story of leadership. And it's so neat for me, someone who's passionate about leadership, to really sit down with someone who is, who's led, led at the highest level. And so I'm really excited to to dig into that. But I'd love to start, Cheryl, and there's a lot of places we could start, talking to you or asking you about your family. Uh, And specifically, I'd like to ask you about your dad, uh, Daddy Max. He sounds like just this incredible leader and man. Can you give us a sense of what he was like?
1: Well, he he was a bit bigger than life in my world. Um, He was uh, very tall, kind of a rustic ranch hand looking guy. He loved to wear a good cowboy hat and some boots. Uh, He had a gruff, big voice, huge laughter, big sneezes, you know, (laughs) uh, he was big, he was a big man. And uh, he he teased and cajoled and encouraged and hugged. Uh, He was a very expressive person. Mm. Um, And uh, I just, he was my favorite. and when people ask me, you know, who was your greatest mentor, it, it absolutely has to be my dad. Mm-hmm. I loved uh, everything about him, including his imperfections, by the way. He wasn't perfect. Uh, but, you know, that, too, teaches you something about leadership, right? We, we aren't perfect. We don't always get it right. Uh, but, boy, he had a big heart uh, for people and for leading them to uh, be- bigger and better things.
0: That's so cool. He sounds like such an incredible, unique combination of qualities that you often don't see that kind of big, strong, but also kind and and loving. Uh, What did he do for a living?
1: My dad uh, was the vice president of manufacturing for national semiconductors. So the fact story on his career is he really grew up in a fast paced changing industry that went from transistors to the integrated circuit to the chip in his short career. Um, So he was a huge part of innovation and growth. He built 16 factories in Asia was his final assignment. He spent over 10 years in Asia. Um, So he was an innovator as well as a leader, as well as an adventurer because there weren't many people signing up to go uh, move their families to Hong Kong and Singapore in those days.
0: So how long did you live overseas growing up?
1: The family went when I was a senior in high school. I joke that, you know, you are supposed to graduate from high school and leave home, but my family <laughs> left me before I graduated. <laughs> uh, I guess my mother says she thought we were re- that I was responsible enough to get along, and so off they went. And uh, I went to college at Indiana University when they went to Hong Kong. But my three siblings, uh, Beth, Laura, and David, all graduated from Singapore High School um, because my parents were there uh, in Asia for about 11 years. Uh, So it was a huge part of our family experience, a broadening part. You know, we met people from all over the world. We traveled all over the world. Um, The experiences were rich. And to be honest, I think it made us a strong family because we leaned on each other Uh, because we were a long way from relatives and, you know, the comforts of home.
0: And I I read somewhere, and and feel free to fact check me on this, but didn't all four of you go on to be CEOs, you and your other younger siblings?
1: Yes, we all ended up running something, and the the titles varied from owner to partner to president uh, to CEO. But yes, all in charge of something. Um, and I always say, you know, that's an incredible tribute to my parents more than it is even to us, um, because I think they were shepherds of the education and the values that uh, led us to aspire to and to be um, take that stewardship responsibility to lead. And so, uh, of course, I'm really proud of my brother and my two sisters and all that they've accomplished. Um, but I, I really think it's a testament to our parents.
0: Would you guys talk about leadership? Like if you were at the dinner table, would, would your dad or your mom talk to you all about lessons they learned or great leaders?
1: Yeah, you know, I do believe our dinner table was a classroom, um, maybe unintentionally so, but a classroom. My mother was a teacher and my dad, I think, was kind of it was ingrained in him to teach as well, because there was always a story at the dinner table and the story always had a moral. So they were very often I experienced this in the workplace. Here's how I thought about it, here's how I made a decision, and here's the important moral of the story. For example, one night he was particularly upset because he had to lay off a large number of people. The following day, you know, sales were yeah. down. They didn't need the product and he had to lay people off and he found that heartbreaking. So he showed us all the emotions that he was feeling wow. uh, as he knew the implications that that would have on families um, and how serious he took that decision, um, how you know, much he hated to have to do that. Um, but yet he explained to us why he did it, how he did it, how he treated people in the process. Um, and I truly, we were taking that all in. You know, you never know what your kids are hearing. <laughs> yes. um, but I, think, I think we heard a lot at the dinner table, particularly around the value uh, traits of a leader, how you think about people in the context of important decisions.
0: Would you go back to those stories when you were a leader? Do you ever remember thinking about uh, what would dad do in this situation? Or what would mom tell me to do as a leader right now?
1: Very much so. And I also maintained my whole adult life a frequent conversation with Mm -hmm. my parents about life and work situations. It was not at all unusual to call them up and say, this is what I'm experiencing. What would you do? Mm -hmm. In fact, I was as an adult in a difficult time, one time uh, working for a company that was not a good fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, I, I pretty much reached that conclusion, but was calling to check in. And my dad said, and I don't know where this verse is, but I'm sure it's in the Bible. He said, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Um, And there were many moments that were really uh, high impact moments for me where I would get clarity or just wisdom from talking to my parents. Um, And I still do it today. My mom lives a mile from my house today and is a very close friend.
0: I've heard you talk a lot about your faith in your books and, and in your writings. Uh, was Has your faith always been a big part of your life or was there a, a moment or a period in your life where it really became a more central part of the way you live and lead?
1: Well, faith has always been a part of my journey because it's been deeply embedded in my family for generations. I I can tell you that I know I've been prayed for for generations, at least three that preceded me wow. uh, by incredible grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles. I mean, that's such a blessing in and of such itself to come yeah. from a faithful history. And so my two grandmothers, my dad's mom and my mom's mom, deeply faithful women and hardworking women. I would say I, a lot of what I attribute to the wiring in my soul <laughs> comes from those two ladies, Uh, one was a dairy farmer, one was a school teacher, Mm. and they constantly breathed scripture into my life, not necessarily a quote, but the teaching. Mm. One of my grandmothers sang hymns all the time, basically the answer to any tough question was a hymn. Um, The other one was constantly placing a book in my lap that I needed to check out, always a faith principle. My parents instilled a lot of the disciplines of faith. You know, go to church, go to Sunday school, be in the youth group, do community service. You know, a lot of those things. Um, and then when my parents retired, their faith became even stronger uh, as they dove into you know biblical teachings. So I would tell you about halfway through my life and career, I would have had been a mother with two kids at home, working full time. Um, I really became convicted that I needed a deeper faith walk um, and began reading the Bible, uh, Mm -hmm. figuring out what it meant for my life. And for me, the big change in perspective was that my work mattered to God and that Mm -hmm. leadership workplace was an incredibly important stewardship responsibility uh, in this world. Um, and that has forever changed how I approach my work. Um, I don't frankly view my work as evangelism. I view it as living out my faith and my calling responsibility um, in culture. Um, I want to be um, a model of my faith, not a talk about it person. Yeah. Um, and um, I think you can see in a lot of my leadership principles uh, the source of my faith. If we just talk about serving others, I mean, that's the central thesis of my leadership. Um, and that does come from the teaching of my faith.
0: Yes, I, I, I totally can relate to that. Uh, one of my struggles, if I'm just being honest, Cheryl, sometimes is well, it's not a struggle, I guess, it's just a reality is that uh, even as people of faith, uh, there is that daily. I, I think the Bible would say dying to yourself. Uh, you could call it centering or anything like that. What, what do you do? Do you have a practice or, or any way that you center yourself on a daily basis to keep you focused on serving others?
1: Well, I'm a big believer that spiritual disciplines are an important part of staying close uh, to the intent of the word Uh, Not just, you know, leaving it in the book, uh, but applying it to your life. So for me, the discipline of a morning, quiet time, reading, journaling, praying, reflecting, um, I would say is the single most important spiritual discipline uh, for keeping myself on track. I think you hit upon something, though, that um, few people, Christian or not, really think about. And that is, are my motives self-interest? Are are my motives serving others? I believe that none of us get out of bed in the morning thinking about others. It's really hard work to pivot from self-interest to thinking about others. Uh, I often say you can only aspire to be a leader who serves, you can't claim it. (laughs) It it just, it doesn't come naturally. You can't get there and say, I'm done now. It's a fight, it's a fight to be a person who serves. Um, and so I think the question for, for servant leaders is how, um, how you keep yourself accountable. And the spiritual di- disciplines are a great tool in that. I love one of the um, Ignatian, Ignatius disciplines of the examine prayer. And simply put, it, at the end of the day, ask you to examine your day and how you lived it. Um, that's accountability for what you believe. Um, and I really think there's a, a, a lot... Of opportunity for all of us as humans to be more accountable in our behavior. Uh, We all talk a pretty good game, uh, but I think these practices that kind of draw us back to what we believe and the question of whether we lived it today are very powerful questions.
0: You mentioned several of your uh, female examples just in your family growing up. Uh, It made me think of my grandmother just turned 100 uh, about a week ago, and we celebrated her life. And she was she grew up on a farm. She was one of 13. And so I've always had these strong, incredible uh, female leaders in my life. So f- for me, the idea of a, a woman being a leader has always just seemed very natural to me. My mom was in education. My aunt was in education. Has that been the same for you, having viewed these, grown up with these strong women in your life as being a woman in the in the leadership position been tough? Or has that uh, been kind of a natural uh, place that you saw yourself?
1: Well, I think the preparation for leadership as a woman in my family was normal. I was encouraged. I was well, you know, offered good opportunities to be educated. I had these working uh, grandmothers. My mother also worked part of the time, not my entire childhood, but part of the time. So I had lots of examples. I didn't think it was an unusual aspiration uh, until I got there <laughs> and looked around. Uh, when I joined the workforce, it was unusual, yeah. uh, particularly if you looked up for role models. Um, it, it just was rare. There'd be you know one or two women, and if they didn't look like you or share your values or views, what do you do then? Right, you know there were there were not uh, there was not a lot of variety. Uh, for example, um, there was almost no senior women executives who were married with children when I entered mm-hmm. the workforce, and I was really sure that marriage and children were, um, you know, God willing, going to be part of my life, uh, and they have been thankfully. Uh, but I didn't have any roles beyond of what that would look like. So I didn't stress about it till I got there and then started to deal with some of the, you know, kind of built in challenges. Probably the biggest challenge is just, was just not being understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't look like everybody else. You don't do things the same way perhaps. Um, and, Uh, You're often encouraged when you're the different one, uh, you're encouraged to be like everybody else. So I spent a lot of time saying, oh, well, what would I look like in a navy blue suit, you know, in a tie? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Trying to look the part. Uh, I laugh, but in the early days, women did wear silk bow ties, trying (laughs) to look more like a leader. Um, Some silly stuff. Um, But I'll I'll tell you where I came out on all of that is I think what women have to do is understand why they go to work, what they're trying to accomplish. uh, Is their family in alignment? Um, Are they living out their calling? That's what you need to think about. You need to not think so much about what other people think and what other people's opinions are. Um, I think early on I was thrown off a lot by judgment critique, Uh, you know, a neighbor asking me, you know, where I left my husband and my kids when I went to work in the morning, I was really hurt by (laughs) her comment. But, um, but, you know, you had to learn to put things like like that in a category of, um, that's really not a person's, person who I aspire to satisfy, right? So make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. For me, um, I developed leaders for a living, and that included my children, my life, I wanted it to be, and I feel it was an integrated pursuit of that calling. Not an easy pursuit and not without conflict. But once I was certain that it was calling, uh, there was tremendous um, calm about pursuing yeah. both those paths, motherhood and working.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you didn't see at that time many female executives who had children how did you navigate that? How did you find the balance between being a mom, but also pursuing a career that you cared about?
1: Well, I always say imperfectly. I, I think there's a tendency for us to want to hear this all polished up, kind of perfect scenario of balance. Um, I don't think balance is a particularly good word for it. Uh, on any given day, it might've felt like you were swinging between chandeliers, um, (laughs) not, um, but I came to see it more as a one day at a time in partnership with my husband, making decisions together, uh, for the benefit of our family, our kids in particular, um, and making tough choices sometimes. You know, there would be a school program that only one of us could make or a board meeting that came up on the day, on parents' day at school. I mean, they're just, they're going to be conflicts. Uh, one day, my 16-year-old got in a pretty good car wreck uh, in the middle of the day during a board meeting. And she called my cell phone and said, Mom, you have to come because if Dad comes, he'll kill me. Uh, so... Uh, she wasn't wrong about that. This was like her third car wreck. Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I laugh about those things now, but they were huge tension points, right? Yeah. What do you do? Um, I would say, um, and I don't know that all my bosses would have agreed with it, but if it truly came down to a crisis of home, family, and work, I always chose home and family. So I went on some vacations that weren't an ideal time for my company. Uh, I left that board meeting and went to the car wreck scene, although that was not an ideal career move. Um, But, you know, you have to pick your priorities and then live by them and accept any consequence that's associated with them. Right. Um, Had any of those things had a consequence, I was prepared to take it. So uh, over the long haul, um, I feel good about my life as a working mother. Um, I'm now far enough along. I've I've seen my kids as adult children. Uh, they are faithful people, good citizens, raising their own families. I'm really proud of them, not because I did it, but because uh, of who, who they've become. Uh, and um, you know, looking back on it, I can say the the difficult balancing days were all all worth it.
0: Mm. I love that just idea of being willing to to choose very clearly that I'm going to, I'm going to go to the emergency room or I'm going to uh go on this family vacation even though it's not popular and you made it sound like that was something that you had almost decided in advance like these are my priorities uh, if this type of scenario is presented I will I know what I'm going to choose how did you navigate that? I mean, cause I think a lot of people hear that and they're like, yeah, I, I would love to have that level of courage to choose those things that I think are most important in those moments. But there's a lot of pressure on the other side of that, of, of well, what are they going to think about me? Or, you know, how in the world could I tell my boss something that, uh, tell my boss, no, how, how did you navigate that? And what advice would you give to, to people that are in those scenarios? Like pretty much all of us are.
1: Right. Well, you're absolutely right. You better have a plan ahead of the moment um, in two two ways. Uh, This idea of the purpose of your work. I I went to Stephen Covey's school and wrote a mission statement. I've been to every purpose-driven class on the planet because I, I think that's a really important discipline to force yourself to decide, why am I doing this thing? Whether it's parenting or working or doing something in your community, why are you doing this thing? Because without that clarity, how will you be consistently motivated to show up and give them your very best? I don't know. I I have to have clarity about purpose, and I think people do. You equally have to have clarity about your principles, what you believe, and the priorities. Um, You can't be picking those things in the moment like a principle. You can't decide whether you're going to be honest or not when you're under Fire. You have to decide ahead of time. And you can't decide uh, in the moment whether you're going to go to the scene of your daughter's accident or stay in the board meeting. That has to be pretty embedded in your thinking going into that day because of the pressure that you mentioned, right? And so don't expect the world to solve for those things for you. That you have to solve. That's between you. And if you're faith based, it's between you and your God. What is your purpose in this life? What are your principles, what you believe? And how will you prioritize those things? Uh, you even if you have all that written down, you'll be imperfect at it. So why not get <laughs> it? Shot? Yeah. Um, and I think have grace with yourself. So I am a super structured thinker and I have that all written down. But a really good friend of mine told me uh, a long time ago, he said, sure, I'll start aiming for B's instead of A <laughs> Uh, because you know you've got a very full plate and you want to do great things and you're more likely to accomplish that if you give yourself some grace and I've tried to adhere to that as well
0: yes I think that especially during these COVID times I've had to tell myself that a lot just give yourself some grace give your family some grace this is an interesting time uh I love that um what
1: important now. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, Cheryl, I, I want to talk to you, transition a little bit and ask you about, about leadership, even though we've been talking about leadership in a lot of ways already. Um, I, my understanding is after about 20 years of being in business, you really started to study leadership with a lot of intensity. What prompted you after 20 years to start digging into the study of leadership?
1: It was prompted by observing terrible leaders. Um, if I looked at a journal of the leaders I had observed up to that point in my own career and in public positions of leadership, you know, I grew up during the days of Tycho, Enron, WorldCom, uh, some incredible ethical debacles in large corporations. Um, and I really started to say to myself, where are the good examples and why is it not more prevalent that you meet these people uh, Mm. that are good examples of leadership? Why do you see so much self-interest in leadership, so much ego, uh, so much bad behavior? Um, I worked uh, for a company that um, I experienced a good boss one year and a bad boss the next year. I wrote a whole notebook on the differences, <laughs> right? To try to tease out you know, what is wrong with this picture and why so often uh, is the leader, um, I call it ungoverned um, and so self-absorbed that they do not serve the enterprise well. So that's what led to the fascination I read a lot of books on leadership as a result of that fascination. I read uh, everything Stephen Covey wrote, probably the most influenced by Seven Habits of Highly Effective People when I was young. Um, When Jim Collins wrote Good to Great, I found that a consuming, important read. Um, I read everything that Robert Greenleaf wrote, who uh, really coined the secular term servant leadership and wrote about it extensively from his uh, cubicle at AT&T. <laughs> he kind of was Dilbert before Dilbert was oh, wow. born
0: in the cartoon. I didn't know that. That's really uh, because
1: cool. Because he wasn't, he wasn't a famous leader and he wasn't an author or a consultant. He was middle management and he wrote down what good leadership looks like and what bad leadership looks like. And then I hunted for... Uh, examples from business leaders. Uh, I found Bill Pollard at ServiceMaster, uh, who wrote The Soul of the Firm, found Max Dupree at Herman Miller Furniture, who wrote uh, The Art of Leadership. And it turns out both of those are servant leadership principles uh, by le- uh, incredible business leaders, led their companies to great financial performance with very strong purpose and principles. Um, so I began to hunt for patterns and people like that, that I could espouse um, as I went forth in my own career. By the way, this is available to every one of us. We can study leadership and we can choose the attributes that we think are essential leadership and start living them in our own lives.
0: You you posed the question of why are there so many bad leaders? Why are so many leaders... Uh, self-interested. What, what do you, why do you think there are so many bad leaders out there?
1: Well, if I said it really simply, it would be because we're really quick to assess whether someone else is a good leader, and we spend not enough time asking ourselves whether we are good mm-hmm. leaders. Um, and I do think it's pride that gets in the way Uh, One of my favorite quotes on the topic of humility comes from C.S. Lewis. And it's in Chapter 8 of Mere Christianity where he's talking about pride. And he says it's the one vice that all of us easily see in others and struggle to see in ourselves. Mm. Uh, So I often say uh, that's the most important thing to look for in a great leader is whether they're able to uh, look at themselves squarely and hold themselves accountable um, and behave like the beliefs that they espouse. I mean, how many companies have we worked for that have a plaque about Mm. their values and no behaviors that coordinate with the plaque? Yeah. Um, So I always said at Popeyes, we wanna live our purpose and principles before we put it on a plaque.
0: Yes, uh, let's talk about Popeyes. So, you took over as the CEO of Popeyes in 2007. Tell us what was Popeyes like at that time when you when you became the CEO.
1: Um, it wasn't a wonderful time at Popeyes. Uh, it was a time of poor performance, seven years of declining sales and profits. The franchise owners who own and operate the restaurants were very unhappy, discouraged. Morale was bad. At the home office, people were uh, off their game, um, trying to figure out how to right the ship, but not having any success. It was a very unhappy time. And they had had several CEOs in that seven-year period, a a revolving door of leadership. And so, um, unsurprisingly, it was a place of, low trust, lack of clarity of direction, very poor partnership with the franchise owners, uh, kind of all off its game. In fact, in week one, uh, I met one of the franchisees from Texas. And he said, you need to understand, Cheryl, we are the abused children. You are the new foster parent. Do not expect us to trust you anytime soon.
0: Oh, my goodness. How do you respond to that? (laughs)
1: I was speechless, but I'm telling you, I wrote that down that day in my journal and said that is a classic synopsis of A Company in Turmoil. It motivated me, though. I'm so glad uh, the individual who said that, his name was Harry, we're good friends to this day. And I'm so glad he had the courage to say that out loud because it was a compelling challenge to me to say, how would I contribute uh, in a way that rebuilt trust and led this company to more effective performance results. Um, and it governed my expectations to, it would not be quick. Uh, it would not be about me. It would be time with, spent with team over long hours uh, that would resurrect this company to where it should be. So uh, it set me straight.
0: And was this the first time that you had been the CEO of a company? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, I had been a president before, but CEO of a public company is a large step from that role, uh, primarily because you report to a board and shareholders, uh, and you're on your own, buddy. Um, You are truly, it's, uh, you sink or swim uh, of your own accord. Very little feedback, very little counsel, very little encouragement. Um, and so um, I I truly loved my role. I had a, a supportive board, an encouraging board chair, uh, patient shareholders, reasonably patient, um, and uh, a good experience overall. But uh, you want to be prepared when you get to a role like that because uh, it is what they say. It is a lonely role.
0: And so you had obviously spent time doing other things prior to this. You'd been, uh, you know, you'd been in innovation and foods, and you'd spent time in marketing. How how are you? What were you focused on as a CEO versus those other roles that you had played in the past? Um, how is being a CEO? different? Because obviously, I've obviously never been a CEO, and most people listening have never been a CEO. What are you focused on primarily as a CEO?
1: Well, this is my view of the role. Um, I think it is a role that requires you to give direction on strategy, talent, and culture. Um, It's really up to you to vision cast for the organization. That doesn't mean you have to come up with it all, but you have to get it Uh, precisely defined, uh, articulated in a way that everybody understands it. And you have to be the final choice of which strategies you execute to make that vision happen. So uh, a key decision maker on vision and strategy. Uh, Talent is one of the most important things you do. Assembling the right kind of leaders um, in the organization to make these things happen. A CEO cannot be a subject matter expert in everything that has to be done. Um, I had never been a CFO, finance person. I'd never been a CIO, an IT person. And I had never run international, but I was still responsible for all those things. And so I had to, yes, grow my capability in those areas, but I also had to hire top talent in every role that I could trust and delegate to. Um, and then culture, um, I uh, became good friends with Colleen Barrett uh, when she was uh, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, um, dear, dear person in every way. And she said, you know, if there's not a budget line item for culture in your P&L, you're not working on your culture. Mm. Uh, and I didn't at that point know any company that had a line item expense for culture <laughs> in their p uh, So she really made me understand how intentional and planful culture has to be. I essentially built a culture around leadership development, mm. um, developed training around uh, the heart led leader, uh, taught people how to discover their own purpose and principles to become a more effective part of our organization, I decided to really embed resources, time, and, and my own leadership into uh, establishing a compelling culture for the company. Um, and I personally believe that CEOs would be well-served if they did those three things in a focused fashion. You can find someone to run the accounting and the p and as well. You can find people to execute your ideas well. And by the way, you need those people. Those gifts are just as important as the strategy gifts are the people that know how to do the work and make it happen. Um, but at the senior level, um, if you miss on those three things, uh, the organization uh, will fall short.
0: And early in that time, as the CEO, you and seven other talented leadership members of the uh, Popeyes team decided that you were going to make servant leadership the, the model in, at your company. How did you guys decide on servant leadership?
1: Well, I brought the team together for a conversation about it. And we started with that exercise I mentioned earlier. We started with two flip charts and started listing the traits of our best bosses and our worst bosses. And I looked back and I said to them, which do we want to be? Which column do we want to represent us? And of course, everybody said, you know, I want to be a good boss. And somebody in the group said, I think that's called servant leadership. Let me look it up on my iPhone. And this was in the (laughs) early iPhone days. and, and we all laughed and he said, yeah, I think there's a book about this somewhere. And so I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. Uh, but that was the day we articulated it as a servant leadership idea. We thought it was particularly well suited to our company because of the business model uh, being a franchise model where all the investments were made by the owners who bought the property, built the buildings, hired the people. Uh, made all the investments. And we also decided that day that we would serve our franchisees above all other constituents, that that would be the primary filter for all of our decision making. So we decided to serve and we decided who we would serve as our primary uh, constituent that day.
0: And I should say that, that you certainly turned, you and your team turned Popeyes around. What were some of the big metrics that you all were able to look back on at the end of that time and, and see improvements in during your time at Popeyes?
1: Well, all the traditional metrics you would expect. We had a, a, a very focused scorecard around uh, traffic, customer counts in our stores, uh, comp sales, our sales year over year. Uh, speed of our drive-throughs, profitability of each and every restaurant. Those, I would call them common business metrics. Uh, But the one I'm most proudest of is that we also measured our leadership effectiveness with our franchise owners. And the first year we measured it, they gave us 76 out of 100 possible points. Um, You know, I think for a kid, you'd call that a C plus (laughs) at school. So not a very good grade. Um, and for uh, after about two and a half years, um, they scored us a ninety-five or ninety-four percent. Wow! Uh, as leader, rest of our tenure, we were together nine years, and so I'm. I think that's the best testament to whether we did what we said we were going to do, um, and that was serve them well. Um, our franchisees would tell you their operating profit doubled. During that nine-year period, Uh, their sales per restaurant went up on average 50%, 5-0. And they built about a thousand new restaurants during that time because they were so confident in the returns that it would provide to uh, their business.
0: So if you had to give two or three reasons that you think you and your team were able to really turn that around, what would they be?
1: Well, first and foremost, it would be that uh, decision to collaborate with and partnership with our franchise owners. Uh, It may sound obvious, but in most franchising businesses, there's a bit of an internal war going on between the franchisor and the franchisee. Um, And we wanted to see what would happen if you eliminated the internal war. Could we compete more effectively externally? And in fact, that's true, right? If you're not at war internally, you can put all that energy against winning uh, against your competitors. And so I called it our secret weapon. Mm. Uh, we grew our market share 50% during this time too. And I always said the competition couldn't figure out why, because they couldn't see how we worked. And that was the special sauce. That was the difference maker. Because when we went to market, we went together aligned on the approach, uh, the timeline, the resources that required, for example, most systems uh, in restaurants it takes them 5 to 7 years to remodel the system mm-hmm. when it needs to be updated. We did that together with our franchisees it took us 2 years to agree on what to do, so fairly slow up front. It took them 2 years to remodel the entire Popeye system. Oh my goodness. Not five. Wow. So I often say we went slower up front so we could go really fast. Yeah. Um, and partnership makes that possible.
0: Yeah. In the military, we'd, we'd say that slow is smooth, smooth is fast. So the idea of, go. the idea of, you know, really focusing up front, being thorough, getting it right. And then you've got to figure it out. You measure twice and you cut once. Um, yeah. What would you say if you had to describe servant leadership? Because that, that is a term that is certainly used a good bet. In fact, I heard Patrick Lencioni say the other day, "You know, I wish we didn't even need to use that phrase because it implies there's some other type of leadership. What what is servant leadership to you if you had to break it down for the folks that are listening?
1: The simplest definition of it is to count others more significant than yourself. Uh, If you put that filter on every decision Um, and consider its impact on the constituents that you've been called to serve. Now, whether, you know, I use some terms maybe that people aren't familiar with, like called to serve. Well, if you're asked to be a leader, you've been given the job of stewarding people in an organization. Um, And the question is, will you do it well? Will those people be better off because of your leadership? In fact, That's what I took from Robert Greenleaf in his writings. He has something called the best test, and it's a test of your leadership. And it's about three or four sentences long, but the summary of it is, are the people better off because of your leadership? Um, That's the filter for servant leadership. And if you can't answer that uh, decidedly yes then you're leading out of some other cause. And it's usually self-interest. You're trying to build your resume. You're trying to get a bigger, better job next. Your eyes are on some other prize uh, that does not serve the people well. Um, I like to keep things simple. So simply thinking of others more often than yourself. Here's what it is not. Most people, when they hear the word serve or servant leadership, they think doormat, lacking confidence, weak, it is none of those things. In fact, it's one of the toughest leadership styles to actually practice. Uh, those who are good at it are extremely thoughtful, prepared, and working hard to accomplish that. doesn't come naturally. And so I would tell you that it's the most aspirational approach to leadership too. Um, of course, you know, there's a lot of talk about teams and winning in leadership talk. Uh, I absolutely believe if you serve the people well, the performance results will be better than anybody else's. And that's well-documented, by the way. That's what Jim Mm -hmm. Collins documented in Good to Great. That's what Adam Grant documented in Give and Take. There's documents all over the place. What there are not are enough practitioners of the approach. When I'm on the road talking to young leaders, The only thing they want to know is, where could I work for a leader like that? So to me, that says there's not enough of it. Um, And we need to practice it. We need to train it into next generation leaders, including our business schools. Even our elementary and high school uh, students can learn these traits early in life. We can hold these out as the model of great leadership. Uh, And by the way, it could be helpful in politics as well. Mm.
0: Well, uh, Cheryl, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time here. This has flown by for me. And uh, I wanted to ask you just a few kind of lightning round questions here at the very end. Uh, First question is, what do you look for the most when you're looking to hire someone?
1: Well, you know, people probably would tell you I'm a bit of a pain in the neck when it comes to hiring people. I spend a lot of time on the job description and not just the one that HR keeps in a drawer, but like a true description of what's required, the skills, the traits, the competencies, even the personality that works best in this kind of work. Uh, Get it on paper so that you know what you're looking for. Right. And then really use that as a guide to the interview uh, looking for examples of those things uh, that the person articulates, you know, here's a specific situation where I did that thing. Um, I'm also interested in character traits. I'm a big proponent of leadership is both competence and character. Um, so looking for character examples, how other people were treated, was their integrity in decisions? Was there any uh, shortcuts taken? Uh, Shortcuts is another way for saying integrity lapse. Really pursuing that and then checking references. Um, I believe in interview panels. I don't think one person should make a hiring decision. I think it should be a panel of perspectives because we each see someone different in an interview process and comparing can be very helpful. But at the end of the day, the reason I articulate all those things is We need to spend more time hiring well Mm. uh, if we expect to get great results. Mm.
0: What would be your top piece of marriage or relationship advice?
1: The best advice given to me was if you plan to stay married, hang around with people that plan to stay married. Uh, And that has been essential, right? Because Mm. Uh, That's what marriage is. It's a commitment in front of God and your family. And why not hang out with people that share that view and make it their uh, life's desire? And that has been good for my husband and I. We've been married uh, almost 40 years.
0: Wow. What's your top piece of uh, parenting advice?
1: Uh, My top parenting advice, I worried like every parent, I worried about a lot of things. But my discovery was that embedding a deep and personal faith in my children was my most important job. And I found out over the long haul, they'll learn how to pick up their towels. They'll learn how to get their grades. (laughs) I can leave a lot of that up to them. Um, But I did uh, believe that instilling faith uh, was, and I watch them now today as an adult. You know, if you want to leave your children with something when you're gone, um, faith is a foundation that will never disappoint.
0: Mm-hmm. What What do you hope to be remembered for, Cheryl?
1: Oh, gosh. I, um, I hope that the people whose lives I've been part of will say that um, I love them with all my heart, my soul, my might, um, because that's, that's what I hope to model. That's how I've been loved. Um, and there's a shortage of that in the world. So... I hope I'm part of that movement uh, to love one another.
0: I love that. Uh, so one, one final question. So you've worked in the food industry for a long time now. What, what is your go-to food? If you had to <laughs> pick one restaurant or one genre of food, wh- where do you like to go?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, of course I love food. That's why I chose my career <laughs> in food. I, I had to pick one food, it would be a fight between ice cream and cookies. People uh, uh, always tease me about selling fried chicken. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I like ice cream and cookies too. So uh, <laughs> indulgent food has a role in our in our lives. So I think probably my favorite, I'd, I'd come down to ice cream, either the custard at Culver's mm. or uh, there's a great little uh, company called Kilwins in Michigan that mm pretty good ice cream. So I think that'd probably be my favorite.
0: <laughs> uh, I love that. I don't discriminate either. And, uh, yeah, my wife and I really truly like food going out to eat is entertainment for us. Like we don't even need an entertainment budget. We just, we just go out to eat. Um, well, Cheryl, I'm sure people want to connect with you. Uh, where's the best place for them to find the work that you're doing and to learn more about your writing and, uh, and your speaking.
1: Um, So I have a website, uh, CherylBatchelder.com, or you can just Google the word Serving Performs. uh, And that's where I keep all my content. And you can also reach me there. I read every email that comes through my website um, and encourage you to reach out. Um, And then I also would encourage you, uh, I've talked a lot about the importance of faith at work. Uh, I work closely with a group called Work Matters. And you can find them at workmatters.org and a host of res- uh, resources for those of you pursuing work in faith.
0: Hmm. Well, hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I will put all of the things that we discussed, all the books that we discussed, these, uh, these websites in the show notes at my website, calwalters.me. And Cheryl, thank you so much for. Uh, the incredible leader that you are, an example for all of us. Thanks for sharing your insights today and being so generous with, my, with your time. And I'm so thankful my wife showed me the great work that you're doing. So it's inspiring me as a leader.
1: Well, thank her for me as well. This was a great conversation, Cal. And I appreciate your focus on int- intentional leadership. Uh, you're bringing people great wisdom by focusing on that. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Cheryl. Hey, friends. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Cheryl. One of the things I love about Cheryl's story is this idea that servant leadership was the mechanism by which she turned and her and her team turned Popeyes around. Because sometimes I think we have a misconception of what servant leadership means. She mentioned that servant leadership is probably the hardest type of leadership. And I agree with that because it requires... Really caring about people and really taking the time to develop them and and help them in their journey. And that is not always the easiest thing to do in the often busy world of, of leadership. So I just want to encourage you to go out and one, check out her book, Dare to Serve. It's a great book, just filled with a lot of wisdom, and, and you can get that certainly from this interview. What an incredibly wise leader with so much to share. Uh, but I just want to encourage you as you head out to to truly dare to serve. Dare to serve your people, dare to serve your team, dare to serve your family uh, and watch as over time, you see how that leads to the success of your team. Uh, I hope you go and make it a great day. If it's election day, no matter what the results are, if you're listening to this on election day, no matter what the results are, just remember that you really by leading yourself and by leading the people around you have the ability to impact your sphere of influence, no matter if your candidate's elected or not. And I hope you go and make today count. Remember, life is short. Let's make it count.